Welcome to The Professor and the Hack. This is episode 36. Sorry, we took a bit of a break last week. There was too much going on, Professor Peter Van Orsen. There was. There was a lot going on. But there's still a lot going on this week, so we can talk about both. Well, in fact... We've actually got something that approaches, if not a policy, at least a determined target uh, heading into the next election. So what do you know? We're underway and uh, it comes from Labor, of course, and uh, and they say that they are now committed to this target of zero net emissions, uh, carbon emissions by 2050. What do you make of that? Well, I love, let's start with the government's attacks on it because it's hilarious to watch. So straight away, you've seen minister after minister from Peter Dutton to Matthias Corman to the Prime Minister himself, rants by Barnaby Joyce and others. Craig Kelly reckons he's done a back-of-the-envelope calculation about how costly all of this will be. Let's insert a few interesting facts into the mix, okay? So federal, Liberal and National Party MPs are slamming Labor's plan for a 2050 zero net emissions target. A couple of things. Firstly, every single state has the same target, including Liberal governments in New South Wales, South Australia and Tasmania. We also have it as a target for 73 nations globally, including that well-known lefty Boris Johnson in the UK. The CSIRO says that it is a less costly thing to act towards that target than to not act. The Business Council of Australia, the Australian Industry Group, are both in favour of the net zero target. And guess what? Here's the punchline. We signed up to exactly that target at the Paris Agreement that Tony Abbott signed on to. So technically, our government actually already supports that in one form or another. But, but apparently Labor is reckless and crazy quote-unquote, according to Peter Dutton, to be going down that path. Now, Hugh, if you can square that circle for me, you're the professor and I'm the hack. (laughs) Well, I don't want to give you my (laughs) hack crown, uh, Peter, but (laughs) the point you make in there is is really, really important because I've seen the attacks out there. A lot of people are out there from the coalition now hitting the airwaves and they're, and they're running this line about how it's irresponsible, about how it'll destroy business, about how it'll destroy farming. The headline in uh, that other mob that em- employs you, the Australian newspaper, <laughs> uh, says the headline is Labor Climate Target a, quote, business body blow. But as you point out, the Business Council of Australia says in its policy, quote, we support the Paris Agreement and transitioning to net zero emissions and by 2050. And the Australian Industry Group, Hugh, don't leave them out as the well. Manufacturers. It's, not the, it's not the isolated, out of the mainstream lefty organisation, the Business Council of Australia. It's also the one that Innes Willocks runs as well, the Australia Industry Group, uh, who supported. I mean, th- this whole debate has become theatre of the absurd, I think. And then here's the best bit too. The government are attacking Labor, but they're not attacking Labor necessarily for the zero emissions target because they want to keep the door open that they might stick to that, given that they've already signed on to it for Paris. They're attacking them because they haven't costed it. Now, let me just put a little meat on the bones of that. You can't reasonably and responsibly put economic modelling and costing on something that goes out to 2050. I mean, seriously, it's 30 years away. The nature of economic modelling is such that this stuff actually requires so many independent variables that can change. We can't predict where technology will go. The slightest adjustment, which then skews its inaccuracy over a 30-year time frame, 
even on the things you can predict, renders that modelling completely irrelevant. We can't even get a budget surplus projection from one year to the next accurate. So the idea that you cost something like that is actually absurd. The whole point of it is that it's a target and then you have 30 years over, for example, six five-year plans where you work your way towards it. But they're trying to turn this into some sort of debate about, oh, it hasn't been costed ipso facto, it's a dumb policy. No one costs something that far out and if they do... And if they do try to economically model it, I can guarantee you they are always going to be inaccurate because how can you ever know what's coming around the corner? 30 years ago, we didn't know there was going to be an internet. We didn't certainly know about iPhones, electric cars. It's just absurd. Elon Musk was uh, doing whatever he was doing. Um, But look, I'm going to put my tinfoil hat on here. Oh, here we go. (laughs) Yeah. Um, one thing which is absolutely strikes me is six five-year plans. And I remember five-year plans. I think it was the Soviets who came up with five-year plans. So immediately you've declared yourself as a... Uh, oh, as, I'm a communist. As a, as a, Let well, me just communist, socialist, that's right. You're the, the Stalin commentator. I'm not, nor have I ever been a member of the Communist Party. I feel like I'm in a McCarthy hearing with you now. You go on. <laughs> then you also say that you can't uh, model out to 2050 the costs of these sorts of policies and changes. Frankly, I completely agree with you. However modelling out uh, to 2050 and beyond is exactly what climate policy is based on, and that is the climate modelling, the science modelling. You know, if, if we put this sure. much carbon into the atmosphere, we'll get this much effect in, in, terms, of, um, in terms of temperature warming. Uh, so if the scientists can model out, uh, and I'm, I'm really putting this argument up to you, I can see the difference between scientific modelling mm. and economic modelling, but I'm not sure that the marketplace necessarily sees it you know, the voters necessarily see how come you can model out the climate for decades ahead, but um, it's unreasonable to ask politicians to give us an idea of what the costs might be and where those costs might fall. I think there's two parts to that. I mean, on the purest issue of modelling, the reason you can model the climate versus uh, you can't model economically over that time spectrum with technology technology changes is because one is based, its future modelling is based on its past modelling vis-a-vis the climate uh, and trajectory, if you like, whereas around economic modelling, it's predictive uh, based on assumptions which we can't know yet because we don't know where technology is going. But where I agree with you, though, well, I mean, is, is on the one, policy one observes, one observes the laws of physics and the other observes uh, essentially the rather more chaotic uh, presumptions of of human behaviour and spending and 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 where where economies run. I think that's the key difference, yeah, isn't and, it? Is and that... physics, in large part, is an exact science, whereas economists like to think that they're scientists, but they're not. Uh, and it's it's much more fraught with inaccuracy if you get the model slightly wrong in the first, you know, like even a, a quarter percent adjustment early on around where you think economic growth is going to go, pushed out inaccurately with missing predictions around technological developments 30 years renders it almost useless from the get-go. But none of that is, and I think this is as much your point as anything, correct me if I'm wrong, none of that impinges though on the political difficulties and frailty that Labor might face in not costing it, just like Bill Shorten did ahead of the last election when he got pulled to shreds by our former colleague Jonathan Lee over his 45% emissions reduction target. If you don't model it, it's easy for a scare campaign to attack where the costs might go, even though the CSIRO says that it's actually more expensive to do nothing than to do something. So this is a political problem for Labor where it perhaps shouldn't be and isn't an economic problem. I mean, one of the things we've heard them people come out today on the coalition side hitting Sky News and various other sorts of outlets going through the talking points and saying, look, this will be destructive to farming 
for example. Uh, yep. And yet Fiona Simpson, the head of the National Farmers Federation, says climate change is making the drought worse. So if there's anything which is really affecting farmers, it's been the drought. And yet, uh, you know, the argument that, that you can't do anything that's going to reduce emissions because it's going to somehow hurt farmers, it seems to me as if... Uh, not that these things have been ineffective in the past, but it seems to me as if the attacks that are being made on this, as you say, the government itself, the coalition has signed up to this as part of the Paris Agreement, but nevertheless they're attacking it. They, the, the difficulty, it seems to me, is that a scare campaign has a life of its own. And particularly if you're not attaching your scare campaign to anything that might remotely amount of policy consistency or reality, you can run a pretty good scare campaign against this kind of and stuff. And both sides of politics have done it. I mean, Scott Morrison ran a brilliant scare campaign against both Bill Shorten personally as well as his 45% emissions target, you know, and his wrecking economy-wide policies around tax at the last election. Paul Keating did it to John Hewson with the fight back package. Bill Shorten did it and almost was successful unexpectedly in 2016 with his Mediscare policy attacks against Malcolm Turnbull. Scare campaigns work, but it's incumbent on a lot of us in the media as well to call out where they become fraudulent, if you like. But we know from polling, voters don't trust journalists any more than they trust politicians. So what scare campaigns do is they muddy the waters and they make people afraid of change. And one of the reasons when you look at elections right around the world historically, progressive parties who advocate change more than conservative parties who advocate continuity, well, it's the change parties that don't win as much as the continuity parties because voters ultimately often get scared into conservative reactions. The irony being that not acting is often the more cost-difficult process that one can take rather than acting. And that's something that this debate will be interesting to watch. The cost of action versus the cost of inaction. One is more tangible for a scare campaign than the other. And unfortunately for Anthony Albanese, that is potentially the cost of action. So let's try and work this one through, you know, Angus Taylor, the energy minister, who's, who, who basically has not put a foot right, more or less, in his front <laughs> bench career. Uh, nevertheless, he's been pushed forward. He is the energy minister, uh, saying that Labor is all target and no plan. So let's talk about the difficulties for Labor. We'll get onto the difficulties of the government on this in, in subject in just a moment. But essentially, this is the difficulty at this point. There is a target. There is no stated plan. Anthony Albanese is basically making a virtue of that, saying we're going to work up to that, we'll have something in time for the next election. But that leaves a lot of ambiguity uh, for the government to go and, and hammer a whole bunch of negatives to his mast, surely. It does. Uh, and it means that every day or week or month that passes before he puts whatever that interim plan towards 2050 in place is, uh, he will be attacked for not having details to go with his target. Now, that may or may not be effective, though. We'll see. Historically, it has been. But the big unknown, I guess, is in the wake of the bushfires and obviously the drought as well, uh, some of the attitudinal shifts that we've seen reflected in news poll around climate change. Does that make it easier for Anthony Albanese to try to conduct a more nuanced argument? Uh, it intellectually should, but history tells us that it won't, based purely on the success of past scare campaigns. Now, one thing about that is that we've seen in the past, uh, we particularly saw during the millennial drought, that there was a shift uh, that was being able to be picked up, that people were taking climate change very seriously, the effect on the drought, on the nation. Then it rained, Brisbane got flooded, everyone went, oh, well, and went back to sleep on that. Mm. So the question this time, and we don't know, is that is it different? Have attitudes changed 
so that they stay changed on the reality of climate change and the urgency for action on it? Or is this something that now that the, the grass is green, I was up in, the, in, in, in regional New South Wales over the weekend, it was looking unbelievably green. You know, there was, there was mud in the wheel ruts, uh, sorry, water in the wheel ruts. And, um, you know, do people go to sleep again on the subject of climate change pretty quickly? Yeah, they, they, well, there's certainly the risk of that. The interesting point for me will be whether or not people start to see climate change as an economic issue of itself. In other words, this idea that if you don't act on it, it'll have economic repercussions. Look at the fallout, for example, post the fires. Now, there's a few steps to that. People have to believe that climate change is a factor in longer fire seasons or longer droughts, which therefore have an economic impact. If they overcome that hurdle, which I think they increasingly are, they might then, like the recent news poll suggests, be as if not more concerned about the economic impact of climate change rather than simply the putting up of energy prices as their fear. Now, if that change happens, then the debate over the environment and climate change ceases to be a post-material issue and it becomes a very material issue. And that is an interesting adjustment if it occurs. You know, we know... Explain what you mean by that, from post-material to material. So so post-material voting intentions was something... I mean, I won't go too long on this, but a guy called Inglehart was an academic back in the 70s, I believe, that came up with the concept of post-material voting. The argument was, as we have a burgeoning middle class and people are more comfortable in their economic existence, they will think about other issues that are not economic, in other words, that are post-materialist, the environment, uh, social justice issues, whatever else it might be. But the theory about post-material voting is that it falls by the wayside very quickly if people's material well-being or economic well-being is about to be impinged on. And that's why... Green parties, for example, can do well in good economic times, but suddenly they get pushed to the side in tougher economic times because post-material voting gets pushed to the side. What I'm positing here is that climate change, which has always been seen as a post-material issue like civil liberties or whatever else, it can become a very material issue around economics if people start to see it as something that, you know what, not acting on this will actually bump up my energy prices or will actually make it more expensive to buy produce because of the effects of drought and climate change and fires. So if you take it that the Australian electorate, despite the, uh, you know, the, the fixations of the inner city lattes, sipping elites and all those other kinds of cliches, that the real electorate is still fundamentally material in its view, you know. Which the, I take that view. You take that view. I, I tend to take that view too. I think people still basically vote on their own uh, material well-being on what they think is going to most protect it. And I'm sure you don't either, Hugh. I don't judge that because, no, no, no. you know, it's an entirely understandable way to vote, particularly, you know, in tough economic times, particularly uh, when you've got a constrained budget at, at home, particularly when, you know, house prices are soaring or whatever else might be the case. Uh, I take the firm view that in a democracy, people are entitled to vote on whatever the hell they please. And it's for us to try to interpret what that process is. And it's for politicians to try to reflect it, but also steer the country through leadership. It's a difficult task. But if it is, I sort of have a look at this issue. If this is going to be at the next election, a key issue, and I suspect it may be unless there is a huge uh, correction on the markets and a big global recession, uh, in which case climate change will go off to one side and the policy around it and it will go straight down to a GFC type thing and I, I wouldn't completely rule that out. Um, 
what we, I think we're going to be looking at for the next election, if climate change is still central to the whole question, is if it is a material issue, mm. will that damage the coalition more than it damages Labor? In other words, who will see which party will people see as the best oh, yeah. to navigate their way through the material realities of a warming planet and what we have to do to try to manage see, that heat? That, that is a fascinating question because first instinct is to say, well, obviously Labor, because the argument is that the coalition has been recalcitrant or dinosaur-like when it comes to climate change action and mitigation and so forth. So therefore, Labor, if people start to see climate change is more than a post-materialist issue but a materialist one, then Labor would have the advantage. But not necessarily, because if the coalition can get their reactionary right flank under control and be seen to be acting on climate change, they are still the party of better economic management. Whether that is fair or unfair, that's what the polls tell us has long been the case. So as long as voters don't think that they are climate change deniers and that they are embracing of the need for action on economic reasons, if they believe them on that, I think voters will then more likely see them as better at carrying it out than Labor because they are seen as the party that are better at economic management, as I say, whether that's fair or not. I want to talk a bit more about the risks for the government in all of this uh, debate. Uh, we, we, we've felt out a tiny bit of what the risks are for Labor, but there are other issues to go on. We're going to take a quick break, come back with you, Professor Peter Van Onselen. Hey, when you've got a moment, check out some of our 10 Speaks podcasts. Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Hammer at Home with me, Baz Dubois. I'm Matt Burke, and you've been listening to 10 Speaks Rugby Podcast. I am The Hack, I'm Hugh Rimminson, and with me is the Professor Peter Van Onselen. You're looking splendidly relaxed, Peter. Have you missed me? Next time you're looking for a podcast, head to your favourite podcast player and search 10 Speaks. And give us a five-star rate and review while you're there. Welcome back. We're uh, halfway through episode 36 of The Professor and the Hack and the Professor Peter Van Onselen is in in, uh, in lucid form. As always, Peter, I'm the hack, by the way. I forgot to introduce myself. It's Hugh Remington here. I'm, I am the mere hack. But, um, Peter, to take you back to that issue, I'm going to move on from this zero net emissions type mm. thing in just a moment. But you've nailed something there, and that is that the initial response from the coalition is to attack Labor flat out on this. But they have the difficulty in that between now and the next election, it is almost certain that the coalition is going to have to affirm a policy that looks very much like the one that they're right now bagging the hell out of, if only because they've already signed up to the same policy. Well, and look, I think what they'll probably do is they'll slightly massage their way to it being a slightly different target than what Labor have committed to and what the Paris Agreement is that they have technically committed to simply because they'll try to create some product differentiation. They won't want to just sit there and say, well, we've modelled it somehow, you haven't. They'll want to say that theirs is a more, if you like, responsible target than a net zero emission. So, for example, if they, they might say net zero emissions, but they might start excluding sectors. Anthony Albanese, in his Insiders interview, made it quite clear to David Spears that it will be an economy-wide net zero emissions target, not excluding certain sectors. Perhaps, for example, what Scott Morrison might do partly to appease his junior coalition partner, the Nationals, he might exclude the farming sector from it. Well, the farming sector's done pretty well, actually, at reducing well, it emissions. It certainly boasts that it has. Yeah, but Hugh, you're putting facts in the story. It's not about that. It's just about the spin. You know, we're talking about Scotty from marketing here. What he'll do 
is make it about the spin of, well, we're protecting farmers. Or maybe he'll remove our, um, our coal sector, for example, uh, or the mining sector writ large. It completely distorts the numbers, but I think well, well, you, something you can't, like You can't that. say, hey, we're going to have zero net emissions, but we're going to remove, we're going to remove the energy sector, which <laughs> is where most of the emissions come from. I mean, that surely cannot have any credibility. Well, I'm not defending it as a credible way to go, but I could just imagine them trying to do something clever like that because that becomes the way that they can have their product differentiation with Anthony Albanese, attack him for his policy going too far, but still make a claim that they're doing a lot, just not as much. You know, I mean, I'm just trying to think outside the square about how no, they I think, all I think you're right. I think you're right. That's, that is probably where they'll try to do it because all they've got to do uh, on their base is to be not quite where Labor is uh, or, exactly. the, or the Greens exactly. and to be on the other side because then if you're going to make a choice about it and if you have a more conservative view about action, you'll go for the more conservative option and that's a pretty good place in the market uh, for the coalition uh, to position itself while also effectively coming up with something pretty similar. And I've noticed something else in the, in the arguments about this, and it is, uh, it's deeply cynical, but uh, the phrase is uh, zero net emissions. Mm. It, it, and I've noticed that the attack is going in certain places on zero emissions, so zero carbon emissions. So the labour uh, target of zero net emissions is being argued as if he's declaring zero carbon emissions. Which, of course, and if is you, not. Which, of course, is not what it is. And if you, but if you look at, for example, the comments pages, God knows, I, I must get a life, in the, in this, in the Murdoch tabloid uh, newspapers, for example. Hang on, hang on, hang on. We've got breaking news here. You read the comments section? I always in, do. I oh always do. For my I own mental to, health, I don't do that. Yeah, but no, no, because this is part of the debate. I listen, I try and graze widely no matter where the <laughs> lunacy is. But what has come out in every single comment in the Sydney Daily Telegraph, the Murdoch Sydney uh, tabloid, refers to and argues on the basis that Labour is claiming zero carbon emissions. And people are saying, oh, there'll be no cars, there'll be no coal, there'll be no business, there'll be no nothing, because <laughs> zero emissions means zero anything, you know. And, and they've just glided past the notion that it's net emissions, um, you know, that some things are still going to produce emissions, plainly they are. If there are any petrol-driven cars in 2050, yep. they'll produce emissions. Any energy source, whether it's coal or gas, is going to produce emissions. A whole bunch of things are going to produce emissions, but it's what you have to offset that. And I know this sounds almost like reducing this whole argument down to absolutely, uh, you know, almost stupid primary level, but um, we've seen how powerful, uh, you know, attack ads can be, even from third parties. So even if, even if they're mm. not signed up by the coalition, you get another Clive Palmer or someone else turning up and running on the on the Labour wants to destroy wants to wants to destroy the weekend wants to take your Ute away. This sort of stuff going on can have significant impact. And uh, that would be one of the hardest things if you're a labour strategist to think, how do we manage to clarify for people the difference between net zero emissions and flat zero emissions? Yeah, well, they've really got to highlight all the things that they will do to be able to offset the continuing industries that produce emissions. So, you know, for example, tree planting endeavours which help mitigate against, uh, you know, coal usage as, as one example. They need to try to make the point, don't they, that don't worry if you're working in a coal mine, and Anthony Albanese has said there will still be um, coal production at, and coal mining by that point in time, which there may be, there may not be, 
But if his, his argument is don't worry if you're doing that, that is part of the emissions that we accept, but we offset it by forging other industries which might be around, you know, things that help to, to offset it, like, as I say, the tree planting. He's given a whole bunch of other examples, forms of agricultural farming uh, that can have positive effects as well. So it's about trying to sell that message. But you're right, Hugh, it's complicated, isn't it? And people forget the word net and scare campaigns are usually simple uh, and can therefore become more appealing in soundbite periods. Now, at the risk of giving you a little hoist up onto your favourite hobby horse, and I do love you once you're on that hobby horse, I'm there in the, in the stands at Randwick cheering you on, um, rorts. Oh, God, yes, there's more of them. So you have been nothing if not energetic in pursuing the issue of sports rorts, uh, that story over recent weeks. And what well, it actually means... They still haven't means. done anything. They still, still haven't, haven't anything, changed a bloody thing, but And sorry, you're seeing on. more rorts. And so this is to just remind people of the principle at play here. This is where your taxpayer dollars get essentially hijacked by political parties, and particularly yep. those in government, to uh, essentially try to buy elections. What else have you found? Well, it was revealed over the last weekend that, yes, we've still got sports rorts and there's more examples of that coming out uh, all the time and and nothing has been done about it. Uh, And we now know, of course, that ineligible projects have done well, not just projects deemed eligible as opposed to meritorious. But now in the regional infrastructure space, in a program that was overseen by the Deputy Prime Minister Michael McCormick, uh, reports have revealed that Labor electorates in need of these regional infrastructure grants missed out uh, and indeed disproportionately, I think over 80%, coalition seats were receiving these grants. Now, Labor has referred this to the Auditor-General, so it'll be interesting to see if the Auditor-General picks up the cudgels of it and does some more investigations and then we'll find those out subsequently. But it's just another example of taxpayers' dollars being misused for partisan political reasons uh, and never meritorious projects as the ones that win out. It's always based on the furphy of eligibility rather than merit. And can I just say this, Hugh? This is one of the things... This occurred to me. I wrote about it on the weekend in my Oz column. It, It suddenly occurred to me that... The Liberal Party, if you think about it, they've long disagreed with quotas, gender quotas, to fix the fact that they have so few women in Parliament. How have they done it? They've always done it by saying, we believe in merit. You can't just impose a quota to fix a gender imbalance. It must be about merit. Merit is sacrosanct. Yet that's the same party in government that says, don't worry about merit, it's about eligibility, which, by the way, 43% in sports weren't eligible anyway. But they try to argue that merit doesn't matter. Talk about picking horses for courses here and being profoundly inconsistent. Uh, These programs are writ large. There'll be a lot more in this space. And as I've said before, I am not giving up on it because they hope we will give up on it and that we will stop talking about it rather than acting to do something so that we have to stop talking about it because they've fixed the problem. Well, something which has caught my eye, which is not that closely related to this, Peter, but which might be, is that the ratings juggernaut on television at the moment, on a rival network, we both work for Network 10 on, on Channel 9, is Married at First Sight. Yes. Now, it is achieving huge audiences. It's a runaway success in ratings terms. You're a long-term viewer, aren't you? Uh, you know what? I've never seen it. <laughs> but I have seen people who've been involved in the program from previous episodes, etc., describing how deeply unethical the process is. And mm. no one, I think, when I say I haven't seen it, I've seen maybe five or ten minutes of it to see to see what the thing, what, what the setup is, if it is what it appears to be. And 
every, it, no one can watch that and say that there's anything ethical, moral, or anything about total strangers getting together and, you know, the whole thing. It's a freak show. It's, you know, freak <laughs> shows have a long and storied past of, in the form of entertainment. But the point is, I suspect that almost everyone who watches the show Married at First Sight realises that what they're watching is an, a fundamentally unethical mm. freak show put on for your entertainment and people are entertained by it and they roll up and they watch it. In other words, if you look at people's tastes, mass tastes, ethics is not the most important consideration in how they choose to spend their time. So here's where I flick it to politics and that is that I suspect that ethics is not the most fundamental question for people when they're deciding where they put their vote. And I suspect that the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, uh, is gambling that when the sports rorts thing comes up, when they try to square that off by getting his own former chief of staff to put out the report that says it's all tickety-boo and no, you can't see that report uh, because it's all very secretive and it's in cabinet, all these kinds of things, that essentially he's calculating, rather like the programmers that are rival TV <laughs> network to us, that the punters at the end care about something more than ethics and, uh, and that that is how they hope to glide through on this thing. How's the Married at First Sight thesis working with you, Professor? Was, was this deliberate? Are you trying to leave me depressed for an entire fortnight in Canberra at the end of this happen. podcast? I mean, is that, is that what you're trying to do? I'm already away from home, living out of a suitcase, oh, and now I'm going to be depressed thinking about what you've just said as hey, well. I'll give you depressed. In the last <laughs> few days, in the last few weeks, as we've seen, Coles, the supermarket chain, was the latest to get sprung out in underpaying its staff. Mm. You'll have seen that. Woolworths underpaid yep, yep. even more. Now, what's really interesting is that it came out on the same day that Coles announced their half-yearly profit figure. And here's what I th what really is striking. Of course, the story of the day was underpayment of wages, and, and so it should be. But Coles was saying, depending on whether you compared this half-year with the immediately previous half-year or the corresponding half-year, because there were seasonal effects with profits in supermarket chains, etc., the profit had gone up by 1.7 or 3.3%, uh, depending on which one of those two parameters that you use at. So, in other words, low single-figure profit improvements for Coles. And yet, in the last year, the Coles share price had gone up by 45%. Coles had been valued up by some extra $10 billion in market capitalization. Oh, but I can explain that. So, so, well, here's my thing about this. If valuations of these companies are going through the roof at a rate beyond their profits... Are we getting into a bubble? Is the big story we're going to be talking about sometime in 2020 the crash in the markets? Because surely this can't be sustained. Well, just very quickly, I mean, I do think that there is a risk of, of that with the bubble in the share market, absolutely. But often you can, you can actually see uh, large rises in share prices that don't correlate with profit changes, not because it's necessarily a bubble, although that's always a risk, but sometimes it's because the previous share price was depressed on the assumption of, of profit downgrades that didn't actually happen. So in other words, the market was factoring in coals doing worse than it's actually done, even if it hasn't done as well as you might expect it to have done given the rise in the share price. You know, so it's it's a, if you like, a move from pessimism to optimism. And there was a foreign chain that was looking like it was going to come into the market here yep. and do a supermarket, and then they pulled out. So that might well, have something to do with well, it. Oh, there's no doubt about that. Yeah, takeover talk, you know, usually sends share prices north, and, and that's one of the reasons why insider trading is so illegal. Yeah, I just, I just can't help feeling. I've just got this feeling having, uh, I remember I covered the 87 October crash 
on the Melbourne Stock Exchange when in the days when they still had uh, chalkies, as they call them, who would yep. write up the score, the, you know, the prices in chalk up on the board. And there was one little computer, very slow little computer running at that time. It's now instant algorithms trading. I've seen crashes come and go. And I just have a feeling of unease that, uh, and I get a feeling the Treasurer has a similar feeling, that somewhere in the not-too-distant future and certainly before the next election comes around, that one of the factors we will be talking about will be um, some sort of market reversal. But uh, but we predict too much about the future. Well, that's, that, that, that's your prediction, Hugh. My prediction, as I've said it before on this podcast, is that Scott Morrison walks into the lodge for another three years in two years' time at the election. He's unbeatable. Uh, I'm happy to, you know, wear it as a badge of shame if that doesn't happen. Let's see. Let's not get too far ahead of ourselves uh, with the badges of shame. Peter Van Onselen, great to talk to you as always. Same here, Hugh. Talk to you soon. been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. Hey, Husey here. Can't get enough of Husey. We have a problem. Well, here we are to help you even more. We've got a podcast. Find it at your favourite podcast app.